Well, we are in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, okay? It was D.A. Carson that said the governing themes of this chapter, chapter 10, indeed of this gospel, are Christological or Christological and informs us about who Jesus is. And it leads up to the moving conclusion of chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which is the theme verse of our book, where it says, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so today we're going to be reading a passage that is very doctrinal, maybe a little less ethical, okay? Um, There's not a lot of uh, imperatives or things for you to go out and do necessarily because of this passage. But there are some great pillars of who Jesus is, and the great implication of that is that we would believe in him. And by believing in him, we would have life in his name. So let's start in verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The feast is also known more modernly and to us as Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which celebrates the cleansing and rededication of the temple that came three years after the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, all right? One that Daniel prophesies of in his prophecies. Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist from the book of Revelation. After Antiochus Epiphanes, somewhat Greek, uh, though from one of the four different uh, splits off of Greece, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes came and conquered Jerusalem instituted what is called a reign of terror upon the Jews of the city. Antiochus stole millions of dollars of gold from the treasury of the temple. He made a law that possessing a copy of the Torah was punishable by death. Said that circumcision of male children was not only punishable by death, but any female that circumcised her children or her son would have her children hung around her neck as she was crucified in Jerusalem. Under Antiochus, the temple was turned into a house of prostitution. The altar of burnt offerings was turned into an altar for the Greek god of Zeus. Pigs were sacrificed upon the great altar. And if you know anything about Judaism and pigs, uh, they're unclean, all right? So to sacrifice a pig in the temple was a great slap in the face, a, a huge abomination. Really was, that was really what was called the abomination of desolation, that pig sacrifice, which is a foreshadowing of the future abomination of desolation in the rebuilt temple. And under Antiochus Epiphanes, 80,000 Jews were slaughtered uh, until Judas Maccabees and his relatives rose up among some others that were really skilled in guerrilla warfare who came and fought against Epiphanes and his army, uh, pushed them out of uh, the temple. And so Judas Maccabees, also known as Judas the Hammer, came and freed Israel, restored uh, true worship in the temple. And as they were purifying the temple, there was only enough oil found uh, to light one uh, lamp for one day, okay? And, uh, And that 
that special little uh, oil vial had been stamped by a priest from pre-Antiochus Epiphanes and, and just this one holy oil to be used. And so uh, it was something like eight days that were needed for this purification to take place. And so, uh, well, they poured in what they had and they lit it and, uh, and hoped that, you know, um, well, one day might be good enough. And that oil lasted for some eight days, uh, which was a miracle that uh, was uh, started up this somewhat secular holiday called Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights, celebrating that it was these eight uh, days of pure oil that were provided really miraculously. And so it's not something that you see out of the law of Moses, this feast, but it's something that came afterward through a great victory of Judas Maccabees and the, the oil being miraculously uh, continued. And here even Jesus would be a part of this celebration, uh, which could be done even from your home. It was also winter is just kind of a, a nice little fact given by the evangelist. It was winter, or literally it was stormy or rainy weather. And uh, Trench writes, a translation of it was, there was a storm a-blowing. <laughs> All right? There was a storm blowing. Okay, so where does Jesus go when he's in Jerusalem during Hanukkah, you know, which takes place during December, even uh, in our day? Where does he go in the temple but a place that has a covering has an awning, a place called Solomon's porch. And so let's go to verse 23. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And uh, just fun fact, in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5, you see that Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico was a place where the apostles in the early church would preach the gospel with great power and many people would come to know Jesus. It was kind of like the first Colosseum for a Billy Graham crusade great evangelism took place there. So much so that when I was a youth pastor, I was a high school pastor for eight years in Corvallis. Uh, we named our high school group Solomon's Porch uh, because it was a place that we hoped evangelism would happen and evangelism would come out of uh, this porch. I'm a sucker for a good porch. I don't know about you guys, but uh, especially one with mosquito nets. Am I right? Okay. Anyways, moving on to verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so, you know, some, some would say that these are actually like uh, the Pharisees that are asking this. There's, you know, there may be some legit, you know, Jews that are just asking like, hey, we, we're just really wondering, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Uh, kind of the context shows us that there's enough of both of the crowd just Honest Jews that are kind of see, you know, seeing and hearing Jesus out. And then the Pharisees are trying to trap him and kill him. But they ask him, how long do you keep us in doubt? Or how long do you keep us in suspense? And uh, I don't know if you guys ever use like a GIF on your phone. Anybody here? You love to put a good, there's a GIF. I don't know. G with an I after it should say J in my opinion. But you guys are looking at me like I'm from another planet. I've got enough text messages from you people to know that you know what a GIF is or a GIF, whatever. But go ahead and type in your little GIF bar, the suspense is killing me, okay? And you get all kinds of hilarious uh, pictures or images of people, you know, just chewing their fingernails or blowing into a brown paper bag, you know, or something like that. Just, and, and in a sense, that's what's going on with these Jews. The suspense is killing them. Who is this guy 
that's been going around Galilee and going around Jerusalem and just making a big scene about things and a big spectacle and saying all sorts of stuff and doing all kinds of signs and wonders. And who is this guy? How long do you plan on keeping us in suspense? And that's NIV translation actually says that. How long will you keep us in suspense or more negatively, how long are you going to annoy us? One translation says, tell us plainly, come on out with it. Tell us confidently and boldly, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? You know, it's kind of like when you get pulled over, you know, in a speed zone that you're very familiar with. And uh, you try to give the cop the line like, oh, I don't really know the speed limit here, you know. But maybe if every hundred yards you posted the speed limit, then maybe I'd get it, you know. Because these Jews have actually had about every hundred yards a great sign from Jesus showing who he was. Now, when the Jews are asking, are you the Messiah? Versus if Jesus were to say he was the Messiah, they're talking about two different things. The Jews are talking about a Messiah who was going to come and rescue them from the oppression of Rome. Kind of a Judas Maccabee sort of a guy. A hero riding on a white horse, coming, conquering and to conquer. But Jesus, when he spoke of the Messiah, he spoke of those passages that we read about on Easter Sunday, like in Luke chapter 24. Thus it was necessary and thus it was, um, it ought to have happened that the Christ should come and suffer and die so that repentance and remission of sin should be preached throughout all Galilee and throughout all of Judea and about all the whole world. And so Jesus, when he thinks of the Messiah, he knows those prophetic passages about Messiah is coming to suffer and die. He is coming to lay down his life so that he can do a revolution in the hearts of men and deliver them from sin that is leading them into bondage and leading them into death, eternal death, where the wrath of God is poured out on them. And to Jesus, he knows that that's the important redemption and the important heroism that needs to happen, saving people from eternity under the oppression of hell versus a simple, quick, you know, national restoration that the Jews were hoping for. And so when they talk about Messiah, Jesus and the Jews are coming at it with two different scripts in hand. They want him to say, yes, I'm the redeemer and just wait just a little bit. And uh, pretty soon you're going to see an epic battle where I'm going to just start whooping some Roman tail. But Jesus answers them in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me. Now, Jesus is not referring to an explicit statement that he has said so far in the book of John. I told you already, hey, everyone, I'm the Messiah. Okay, he hasn't said that. Now, there was a little bit of a private conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. All right, I who am speaking to you am he, okay? Or in John chapter 9 with the blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? It is he who uh, you have seen, and it is he who's speaking with you right now. Okay, but those were private little, quick, private interactions, okay? Jesus hasn't yet made a great public plain declaration with his words that he's the Messiah. But he says that the works that I've done or that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The Jews have persisted in unbelief despite all that they've seen and experienced from Jesus. A quick scan of what we've seen so far in the book of John. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. 
He then kicks the extortioners out of the temple. John chapter 3, John the Baptist testifies that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and that he must increase and I must decrease. John chapter 4, Jesus seals, uh, heals uh, the son of a royal official without even going to the son to heal him. He just speaks the word and the son is healed. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. He calls God his father and calls himself both the son of God and the son of man. John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, then miraculously crosses the sea. In John chapter 7, Jesus stands up at the Feast of Shelters and declares a prophecy that is messianic, that anyone believes in me, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. This, of course, John chapter 7 says he spoke of concerning the Holy Spirit, who was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In John chapter 8, Jesus preaches to those at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And he calls God his father and refers to himself of the, as the son of man, a Daniel reference speaking of the Messiah or the anointed one. And then he calls himself, I am. Before Abraham was, I am a clear reference to not only him being the Messiah, but him being God. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. In John chapter 10, Jesus applies the messianic prophecies about the coming good shepherd to himself, saying that he fulfills those things as the good shepherd. Now, John chapter 20, around that theme verse passage in 3031, many other things Jesus did that if we had all of the books in the world, they wouldn't be enough to write about all the things Jesus did. So I can only imagine in these 10 chapters, all the things that Jesus has done so far to show that he's the Christ, okay? So he is, he's like, guys, I've been showing you plainly that I am the Messiah. But the Jews had their metaphorical fingers in their ears. It's been said that there are none so deaf as those who will not hear. He says, the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. They speak well of me. They testify of me. But those works are going to serve to only harden the hearts of the unbelievers all the more. In just the next chapter, we're going to read about the healing and the raising from the dead of Lazarus. And it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead that caused the Jews to finally say, enough with it already. We got to kill this guy, Jesus. You would think that the raising of Lazarus from the dead would be the thing that was like, ha, he's the Messiah. It maybe just doesn't look how we always thought it was going to look. Huh, but that would take humility, would it? And we don't have a lick of that, okay? So the miracles and the signs, if you know what, if you're not receiving them as things that testify of who Jesus really is, then it's only something that makes your heart harder and harder and more hard. Now we're going to get into some incredible verses that deal with the details of the security of the believer. This passage powerfully argues what theologians call eternal security or perseverance of the saints. We're going to do a bit of more of a, of a charcoal drawing of it today or a pencil sketch rather than some deep treatise on the subject. And by the way, it's a bit of a gray area among Christendom. Many people who love Jesus and study the word, they don't really know exactly what to do with this topic because there's some confusing things on what you mean when you say certain words. 
But let's just kind of let the word speak for itself today. And I find that when we come to different chapters of scripture and we read it, they speak to it. And just like a puzzle piece, you know, you got that thousand piece puzzle out and you got most of it together. And then you're just over here at this one spot and you don't know which one goes in it. If you rotate it, you rotate it, you rotate it, you find that it fits right in there. Um, But it takes some understanding of the whole of scripture, okay? Something that we don't do know is that it's the truth that if Jesus saves you, you're saved for good. If Jesus makes you alive, you'll never die. If Jesus gives you sight, you'll never go blind. If Jesus adopts you, you'll never be alone. If Jesus takes you in his hands, you will be in those hands beyond the bounds of time. As Matt Carter says in his Christ-centered commentary on John, when this age is a faint whisper in the annals of time, Jesus will still be holding you safe and secure in his hands. Now, these verses may cause fear as we come to them for those who've never believed, but for those who are believers in Jesus, they could give great comfort and security. It's in these next following verses where we see two biblical truths. One truth is the truth of human responsibility that we must believe in Jesus to be saved. And the second truth that's also in these verses is the truth of real divine sovereignty. That is Jesus who is the good shepherd who keeps those sheep. Jesus interweaves human responsibility and divine sovereignty many places in the gospels. This will be one place. Another was in John chapter 1 verse 11 through 13. When Jesus says he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So one of the responsibilities of men is that as they hear the gospel of Jesus, they humble themselves before God and they receive Jesus. They receive the gospel, the work that Jesus did on the cross to be placed into their account. As many as received them, to them he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God. But the very next verse goes on to say, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So overarching all of this is God's sovereignty. God calls, God elects, God predestines, all right? God enables a person to believe, but God does not do the believing for the person, okay? And so here we have uh, a quote from uh, Alistair Begg, to deny either one of God's, a man's responsibility or God's sovereignty, to deny either one is pointless, but to harmonize them with a finite mind is impossible, Okay, let's see a little bit about what I mean. Okay, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Okay, so Lord, how long are you going to drag us on? How long are you going to be annoying us continually? Why don't you just tell us who you are? Are you the Christ or are you not? I've been telling you. I've been showing you the signs. How can you spend any time with me and see all the signs and the wonders that I've been doing and all the things that I've been saying and you just... You just haven't even been hearing me and you do not believe. Okay. So that's, that's a responsibility check mark in these Jews account. They did not believe. Why did they not believe? Because they were not of his sheep. All right. It was Carson that said, 
It's not just that his own sheep do hear his voice, that he knows them and they follow him. That points us to a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 18, the good shepherd passage. But that those who are not his sheep do not hear his voice, that he does not know them and that therefore they do not follow him. Okay, Faith has not been granted to them yet. Repentance has not been granted to them yet. These are all New Testament words, phrases. Election is a family language. We can come here to church on Sunday and we can talk about election and predestination and we can rejoice in it. Just like, you know, maybe some of you wives, you can rejoice about the story of how you and your husband met and how you were at that party and your husband saw you from across the room before you ever knew each other and your husband was like, Oh, I want her, you know, and then he like pursued you and tracked you down and wooed you. All right. And then you reciprocated that by coming to him. Okay. And it's not offensive and it's not scary. It just shows God's great plan out throughout the foundation of the world before the foundation of the world that he knew you and he's loved you and he's pursued you and he's rescued you. And you know what? It's a family language to talk like that. Christians, I'm talking to you. God loves you so much, he predestined you, all right? He has elected you, okay? But it's not not for those necessarily who are outside of the family to hear this per se, to tell them, well, you just never were elect. You just never were predestined, you know? Just, you know, God didn't choose you. Chose me, didn't choose you, you know? And you just don't see that type of language so much. I'm not saying that there's not conversations to be had. But I like what D.L. Moody had to say. Because I come from a family of people that not all of them are born again yet. But we're from the same stock, you know? This is a total Romans chapter 9 moment, you know? Like, uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated which just means love less, by the way. There was a different calling, electing on Jacob's life. And and for me, that's the case. I've got relatives and it's like, man, Lord, you've called me and elected me and redeemed me and I've been serving you for 22 years now in ministry and and I love this relative, I love this friend, or really the relative, because we're from the same stock, right? We're from the loins of Isaiah Rogers, you know, grandpa. And it's in this study that you realize it's about God's grace, not about race, okay? It's about God's grace that he would call out of the same family, one, and perhaps not the other. This is hard stuff, I know, right? You're already like, but what about, okay, that's okay. And and so when I go to things like funerals of relatives that have died that I'm not sure they knew Jesus, even though I preach to them and I preach to them and I preach to them, or people that have, a, have a, a future not too far away of passing away that I've preached Jesus to them, I've preached Jesus to them, and they've never come, they've never come. And for me in my family language, I go, well, maybe they just have never been elect. But I love what D.L. Moody said. He's an evangelist from like the 1880s, right? He prayed out to the Lord, God save the elect and then elect some more. I like that. 
I like that because I've got these people that I've shared the gospel and shared that for decades. I've shared the gospel. They reject, reject, and their life is in shambles because they've rejected it. And they have a certain future of hell awaiting them. And I just pray, Lord, I don't know. I don't know how it all works, right? C.S. Lewis said, it's a mystery that, you know, you got God's sovereignty, God's electing people. And then you've got man, like, are you going to come or not? Man's responsibility. And somehow those two truths in the Bible meet together before the throne of God. Okay. I think it was Moody who also said that, you know, as you go into the, into the presence of heaven on an arch in the doorway, it would say, um, whosoever will come. And then as you're looking from the inside on the, towards the outside, the arch says, chosen from before the foundation of the earth. Like these are all biblical truths. Okay. And so Jesus is going to be, Jesus is beginning to dive into something here about like Jews, you've been hearing the gospel, you've been hearing it, you've been watching me. Clearly I'm the one that the prophets have spoke of. So why isn't it going in from here to here? Because you don't believe that's on you. You do not believe But also, in the sovereignty aspect of it, you're just not part of the sheep. You're just not part of the sheep. Okay? Charles Spurgeon says, your unbelief is just an evidence that you were not chosen, that you have not been called by the Spirit of God, and that you are still in your sins. And Begg says, to bow before this mystery is to entrust upon God giving us peace and liberty. We're going to see some more. Is this complex? Anyone here just like, okay, I think I blew a gasket here. I don't know that I agree with you here. That's okay. Guys, this, this is all just like some mystery stuff that theologians have debated for a long time. We've debated them in our church. Go back and listen to me preach Romans 9, 10, and 11. Go back and listen to my Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10 passages. Okay, like we dove into this and sometimes we're just like, hey, you know, like, like Paul does at the end of Romans chapter 11, like, oh, how deep and unsurpassable are the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For of him and to him and through him be all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and amen. Because Paul wrote 9, 10, and 11 of Romans and at the end of it, he's like, I don't even get it all. Okay. And so verse 27 of our text, I feel like all the books that I read this week on this had a lot straighter line in where they were going than where we are, but they didn't have the voices and stuff. So I'm kidding. Okay. Verse 27. Now remember, this is, you know, he's referencing chapter 10, different feast, but he's referencing them back to the whole sheep and shepherd passage. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You guys are not my sheep, he just told them. If you were my sheep, you would hear my voice. I know you, you would follow me. Takes us back to uh, verses three and four of our chapter. Moving on though in verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so if you're my sheep, I give you eternal 
life, age-long life, abundant life, eternal life, promised earlier on in the gospel to those who believe in the Son. To have eternal life is to live forever. To negatively express it, it would be that you will never see death, you will never taste death, will never die, and will never perish. These are all phrases in the Gospel of John. Does anybody else think that that sounds amazing? Eternal life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this stuff? Eternal life. Live forever. You know why we don't got to get all psychoed out about all the current events that are going on right now? Huh? It's going to be over one day. And we're going to live forever. You can wear a mask if you want. It's totally great. You should wear a mask. And that's wise. Or don't wear a mask if you don't want to. Okay? And the thing is, at the end of the day, just don't stress about it. So stress. Give it to the Lord. Because if you're in Jesus, you're his sh- you're, he's your shepherd and you are his sheep. And do it with me. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever. Okay? And you can quote me on it. Okay? Go back to verse 10. Who's the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy? That would be the devil. Okay? Who's the one who's come that we could have life? (sighs) 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 The breath of life, blood, pumping, heart beating. 30 30 beats. Okay. That's not good. Okay. Life. And by the way, he doesn't just go like, ah, I've come to give you life. Oh, thanks for that. No, abundant life. (sighs) This is why we do so many dramas for the gospel so that we can tell people in mimery what Jesus has done to change our life. (laughs) Okay? Because he's come to give us abundant life. And if you're just like stuck in your pew, like, like, I don't know that you get it. I don't know that you get it. Because he has come that we might have eternal life, everlasting life. We'll live forever. Even though we might die, we shall live. There's going to be a resurrection. This is biblical theology. Your body buried in the ground or put into an ash urn. It's all rising again. All right? We're going to rise from the dead. Huh? Have you thought about that lately? All right. Our good shepherd... He might crack us on the booty every now and again with that candy cane thing he's got (laughs) to discipline us because he loves us, but he also has a plan. We have abundant life and it's not just the life to come. It's the life we have now. The life we have now is abundant life. Romans 5.21 Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 John 2, 25, this is the promise he has promised us, eternal life. This isn't just one passage somewhere, you guys. When you die, you're going to be present with the Lord if you love Jesus, if you obey the gospel. When you die, you will be present with the Lord. This is promised to us. 1 John 5, 13, it's in line with kind of this section we're in here today. And that is the hope of security in heaven. That we have a heaven we're going to. 
First John was written, it's the key verse of First John, by the way, it's the purpose statement of First John, it's at the end of the book, but he's just saying, I wrote all these things so that you'll know this, so that you may know you have eternal life. Do you know today that you have eternal life? Are you just kind of like, uh, uh, mm -mm, mm, it's pretty doubtful, okay? Hey, come into the Lord's presence and just ask him to help you with your unbelief. And if that's unbelief that's causing you to sin in a way that you're practicing sin and it's questionable if you're even a, a Jesus follower today, then you need to come before the Lord and get real with him on that. But if it's an unbelief that's like, man, I know I love Jesus, but I keep having the enemy tap on my back saying, you did this and you did that and you'll never get in. Then you need to tell the devil to shut up. Okay? And you need to rejoice in the promises of the Lord. Because the New Testament is written, the Gospel of John was written, the Epistle of 1 John was written, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. These things were written so that you would continue to believe. Okay? And so Jesus says, I've come to give them everlasting life, eternal life, and they shall never perish. This is in John chapter 10. What verse are we on? 28, thank you. Was that Elder Joe? You have come a long ways. All right. Underline that. They shall never perish. If you are a sheep, you'll never be destroyed. You'll never be lost. You'll never die. You'll never disappear. You'll never be utterly destroyed. You won't perish. You won't be lost. Of all those that you've gave me, Jesus says, I've lost none except the son of perdition that it might be fulfilled was written by the prophets. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, we are confident of this very thing that he has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can be confident in it. Our eternal security doesn't depend upon our death grip on Christ but upon his grip on us. And when he's gripping us, he works a work of his spirit where he will keep us gripping on him too. It's the crazy part of the mystery because you do have verses that are like, if you continue in the faith, keep clinging to the cross. You know, you've got these passages about continue, stay, grip, cling to him. But all of that is just underneath, like his mighty coast guard rescuer arm of saving us first, okay? The ultimate security of Jesus's sheep rests with the good shepherd. And that's why we have this verse of the good shepherd, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. No one will seize them away, take them away, plunder them from me, take control over them. I've got them, I've got you. You're my sheep. I want to say it again. It's from Carson. The ultimate security of Jesus's sheep rests with the good shepherd. I want to quote F.F. F. Bruce. Physical life may be destroyed, but those who are united by faith to the son of God, those who belong to the flock of the true shepherd can never lose real life for he keeps it secure. He keeps it. I was just listening on the way down to Alistair Begg and he was quoting from the Westminster Catechism. Uh, from the 17th century, uh, talking about, you know, kind of the statement of eternal security. And then, you know, as you're thinking about eternal security, then you start thinking about, well, what about those people that 
have believed or have come forward at the Billy Graham crusade or whatever, and, and now they're off and they're wandering and they're sinning and this and that. And I mean, the catechism, Westminster, just talks about how there are serious consequences for sin. There is serious discipline. There is all kinds of uh, calamities and things that befall. You know, read Pilgrim's Progress and that pilgrim, he's just off in the different meadows that he shouldn't be in. And there are bummer things that happen and good things because discipline and correction and even capital punishment, it's all some of God's grace towards us that wakes us up. And so one camp would say that God is good and he corrects. Even one of my best friends who was the most impactful in my relationship with Jesus in so many ways. I mean, he is the guy that led me to be following Jesus. I served in ministry with him. He did my wedding. And he left ministry, left his wife, left his kids, went, committed adultery, lived a life in debauchery, committed adultery again. And you just think, man, if there's ever an example of someone who can leave their salvation, it's that guy. I gave him like two years before I said that. Like, wow, real gracious. Like, you done! Until I get a phone call where he's repenting and asking for forgiveness because he has sinned against everyone that he's ever known. Still a man, still fails, still messes up, still consequences, but neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Okay, this is tough stuff, isn't it? I know you're thinking about, well, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? What about this and that? Good stuff to wrestle through. I know it. Verse 29. What, what are we at here? It's 11.32. Okay, we'll be wrapping up here soon. We got the worship team ready, so it's not a surprise. Okay. My father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So again, this takes us to... Uh, this takes us to the unity between the Son and the Father in the plan of salvation. In verse 28, you might underline the word, my hand. It's Jesus talking, right? Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is talking. Now in verse 29, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you're like double gripped, by the way, if you're a Christian, just so you know, Jesus' hand, the Father's hand, you ain't going nowhere, okay? The storms of life may come, you may stumble and fumble and bumble and just make a colossal mess out of things, but he who the Son has set free, they are free indeed, and there's a work happening. We are confident in this very thing that he who's begun a good work is faithful to complete it until that day. Notice that it's also God's sovereignty that has given these sheep to Jesus. It speaks of that election. It speaks of that predestination. Notice that the Father is greater than all. Greater than anything. Greater than any dealer, drug dealer. Greater than any internet website. Greater than anything. He's better than any kidnapper. He's better than any false teacher. And as we go to prayer, we pray for these people that are struggling and fumbling and bumbling and that the bigness of God might come in and invade and rescue these people out of addiction and bondage and deception. Because my father, who's got one of those hands on you and I got the other, he's greater than all. No one is able to snatch him out of my hand. Like everything that Jesus says and does, it's all in sync with the Father and what the Father would have him say and do. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. 
says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If we are, in, if we are Christians, we've been crucified with Christ. Just two weeks ago, we had a baptism up here. We had a bunch of teenagers and young adults and kids come up and just say, hey, the old me is dead because of Jesus, crucified with Christ, buried with him in baptism. But the good news is, is that I'm also alive with Jesus. The resurrection power is in me as well. And Colossians would tell us that we died with Jesus. There's a work that happens through faith, but our life is hidden with Christ in God. One hand is Jesus's hand. One hand's God, the father's hand. There could be no greater security than that. Go on to verse 30. This, I think, will be the last verse that we touch on because uh, then we're going to look yeah, at the Jews' response next week. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. So you've got my hand of verse 28, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And then you've got my Father's hand of verse 29. And then you've got... I and my father are one. Carson, Jesus and his father share the same will and task, the preservation of Jesus' sheep. But two other factors. First, this is in peace with 516. There too, the Jews understood this to be speaking blasphemy. Okay, I kind of hopped into something in my notes that's for next week. Sorry about that. Here's something that's really interesting to you guys. I know that you're ready for it. Heather, I can tell. You ready? Write it down. Okay. The word for one here is neutered. Okay. That's helpful as you're studying. Okay. No, it really is. Okay. I and my father are one. The word one is neutered, not masculine here. Jesus and his father are not one person. Okay. As a masculine one would suggest for then the distinction between Jesus and God, the father already introduced in John chapter one, verse one would be obliterated. We've been talking a lot about the Trinity here at Calvary in the last years. We've been going through, uh, John and something that we've studied is that, uh, there are three persons in one Godhead. Okay. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. The son is not the father. The son is not the spirit. The spirit's not the father. The father's not the spirit. Okay. Like three distinct persons in one Godhead. Okay. It's a mystery too. It's crazy hard to understand, but something that Jesus is saying here is not a form of modalism where he has a different mask on at different periods in the Bible. No, he's, he's not saying we are one, the same person. We are one in essence is what he's getting at. And here specifically concerning the verb of keeping the sheep in the fold, we are one in action. We're both in this together. It's like a great World War II poster, you know, next to the Uncle Sam. I want you. You've got like Rosie the Riveter and she's saying, you know, like all in this together. So I don't know. What, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those ones. Rosie or somebody like that. And yet they're not only one in purpose. They are one in essence, distinct persons, I, and distinct person, the father, are one in unity. Lots to say about this. But, and worship team, come on up. This verse constitutes a shattering statement, okay, 
I and the Father are one. D.A. Carson, F.F. Bruce, both quote Lansky saying, this is a shattering statement. The Jews wanted Jesus to say who he was. Tell us plainly, the suspense is killing me. Why don't you just say it already? He's like, I said it all these times and I lived it all these times. I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to give you a little, little something, something right here. And it is this, I and the father are one. Okay. It is going to rock the Jews world to where next week they're looking around for rocks to pick up so they can kill Jesus and stone him. Why? Because Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus knew it. The Jews knew it. John the evangelist knew it. And the cults of today will say that Jesus is not God. He never claimed to be God. He never thought he was claiming to be God. In fact, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. These people probably never cracked open a Bible or done in-depth interpretive work in the first place. Okay. And so as we close up here today, there's a whole lot here, right? A lot of doctrine, a lot of doctrine. I think the implication for us is come to Jesus. What do we do with this? You guys can go ahead and set your things down right now.